0: Good afternoon. Is this afternoon? All right, good afternoon. I know you've been sitting for a long time. We have at least this session and the last session coming. This is my last time being able to speak to you during this this wonderful time together. I want us, as we study, to seek God for wisdom, because I am not smart enough or intelligent enough to communicate in this short span of time you know normally and I get this this feeling every time I come to the last time I'm going to speak to a group I have so much I want to say I don't even know how I want to say what I want to say you understand what I'm saying and so I'm going to ask that you pray with me and we pray together and that God gives us wisdom that is beyond our years as we open the word of God together let's let's pray together Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and your great mercy. We thank you for not giving us what we deserve, but giving us what your dear son does. We've come together and we're still here because we're still hungry, Father. We want to hear more from you. We want to understand your word. We We want to connect with you, Father, so that nothing in this world separates us from you. As we enter into this study, Father, we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. We submit our thoughts and feelings to you, Father, that they reflect your own. And we thank you for hearing and asking our prayers in Jesus' name. And we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Again, we cannot cover everything we want to cover. So I strongly suggest to you, not for my own profit's sake, but because it is imperative that we study and understand what God requires of His people. I encourage you, I have the whole seven part series on this subject matter at our table. So if you want to study, you can't keep it with all the notes or whatnot, and you want a resource that you can use to go back and investigate the Word of God, please visit our table and take this resource with you. Please open your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading or singing at verse number 9. All right? we're going to begin singing at verse number nine, Ecclesiastes chapter one and verse number nine. Are you ready? No one's ready? Are you ready? All right. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done, is that which shall be done. And It shall be. Now, Brother Ben, what I'm going to do this time, I'm not even going to sing. And I don't want you to play. What I want to do, I want to hear you sing this song. Is that okay? This is our fourth time singing the song. So I want to hear you sing. I mean, we can start out one note for you, but I want you to carry this song. Are you ready to sing, my friends? Why why is somebody saying no? Uh, Are you ready to sing? All right. On your mark? Get set, go. The thing that hath been, that which shall be, and that which is done, is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. You got it. Wonderful. So no matter what I say going forward, if you can remember this one principle in our study, you are ready. You can understand what is about to happen in this world. The thing that hath been is that past, present, or future. Past. The thing that shall be is that past, present, or future. Very good. The thing that is done, is that past, present, or future? Present. And we looked at that and we made it very plain that God himself is also past, present, present and future. And when we're looking at prophecy and we're looking at at the end time events, we're not just looking at a theory or philosophical understanding. We're looking at the hand of God and the character of God as he's moving in the lives of his chosen people. Ecclesiastes chapter three and verse 15. Notice again what the Bible says. Ecclesiastes chapter three and verse 15. The Bible says, that which hath been is now, and that which is to be have already been, and God requireth that which is past. So again, very simple. If I want to understand my present situation, if I want to understand the prophecies that are going to happen in the future, what I need to best understand is how God has worked out things in the past. Now, for the sake of time, I have not put up every point that I want to put on the screen. So I want to ask another quiz question. Are you ready for your quiz? One person. All right. Here's the question. What does the T represent in our acronym? The presence. What does the E represent in our acronym? Execution of judgment. What about the M? What does the M represent in our study together? The major executioners. And the P, what does the P represent? The presence departs. And the L, what does the L represent? Last remedy. And the E represents what, my friends? There's an expected gathering. Very simple, very basic acronym that you can take with you as a means of understanding the basic lineup of how God is going to deal with his people. Now, here's a question again, because this is the last session. I want to make sure that you're with me. Under Solomon's temple, how did God show that he accepted the temple that Solomon had built? What did, what did God do? What did, how did God show his acceptance? That's right. He sent his presence in a cloud to be in the midst of of that temple. Why is it that God had to execute judgment on Solomon's temple? Why did God have to do that? They turned from him. What else did they do? They worship idols. What else did they do? They what? They didn't listen to the prophets. They broke the Sabbath. Anything else that they did? They intermarried. What was that? That's right. They worship that was created instead of the creator. And there's one last point. The straw, if you will, that broke the camel's back. What was the straw that broke the camel's back? They turned their backs on the sanctuary and they worshiped what, my friends? They worshiped the sun. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. That's why God had to execute judgment on his covenant people, for his covenant people had broken their relationship with him. So God simply had to draw back and allow the natural consequence of their choices. Who is the main executioner under Solomon's temple? Babylon. From what direction do they come? The north. Very good. Very good. You're on, you're on top of your game this, right now. You're on top of your game. The last remedy. What is God's last remedy? He sent prophets, they wouldn't listen to the prophets. He's done all that He could. What is God's last remedy to save or to procure that which is precious to Him? What is the last thing that He does? He scatters them, He sends them into captivity, He allows them to be shaken. Because the people of the world are looking for a pure example of what God is really like. And when they come to the only place on earth where that truth is had, they can't see beyond all the mess that's in the way. What is the E again? They expect the gathering. Is that right? Where do the people expect to gather? What do they expect to come back to? They expect to come back to that temple. They expect to return back to Jerusalem. Very good. Now, let's go further in our review. We're still reviewing. We're in class. Herod's temple or Zerubbabel's temple, the T in Zerubbabel's temple, how did God signify his appreciation or his favor towards that temple? What did he do? His presence. How did he show his presence? What did he do? Jesus puts on human form, walks in flesh walks amongst his own creation. And as he's walking amongst his own creation, he's dealing with their brokenness and their blindness and their craziness, everything that has to do with humanity. And God is in the midst of his people, and his people do not recognize the time of their visitation. Does everybody follow the idea? So because they do not recognize the time of their visitation, that God has to now execute judgment for Jesus is the only one. And if you didn't know that by now, if you've been here at these meetings, you would know that Jesus is the only one that can solve any of our problems. Whether they be home problems, whether they be financial problems, whether they be educational problems, whether they be job problems, Jesus is the only solution to every single solitary problem that exists in humanity. Keeping that in mind now, if you reject your only solution, what are you left with? You're left with nothing. If you reject the only one that has the answers to all of your problems, then you are left with absolutely nothing. You are left essentially desolate. And this is what Jesus said, behold, your house, not my house, your house is left unto you desolate because the one that makes the house a home is not invited into that home. Does that make sense, everybody? We're still reviewing, though. The M is the main or major executioner. Who is the major executioner under Herod's temple? Who is that? It's pagan Rome. Daniel 8 verse 9 says this power comes from the northwest and dominates and persecutes and prosecutes the people of God. And the chosen covenant people of God are now scattered throughout the world as pagan Rome comes and dominates the people of God. The last remedy, of course, is the scattering of the disciples, the scattering of the church. And the expected gathering is not a gathering to a physical temple at this point. The disciples are all gathering in Jerusalem. Yes, they're gathering in Jerusalem, but they are gathering for the sake of being in unity as Christ moves into his high priestly work. Does everybody remember that? you remember that? Okay, we're thinking right now. We're just walking it through. So as the people of God are united with Christ in his heavenly work, the church is empowered below to execute a work of bringing the gospel to all the world, and the Bible highlights it as a white horse going forth to conquer and conquering. Everybody remembers that, is that right? This is all review. Now, what does the devil do once he sees that the church has strength? How does the devil cause the church to become weakened and not have any power to resist him? In fact, how does he cause or how does he prevail against the saints of God? What has to happen? Say it louder for me. Compromise, deception, anything else? Listen, we went over this, and I just want to bring it out again. You remember that we used the, the character of Balaam, and Balaam wanted to become rich, temporal prosperity, and worldly honor. And as the church began to seek the things of the world, and as the church began to unite with the politicians of the world and the governments of the world, the church divorces itself from the power that comes from the heavenly sanctuary. And because of this compromise, the man of sin is developed. Now, we're going to study right now. And as we study, I want you to think with me, okay? Notice what the Bible says now. We're going to be reading in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and beginning at verse number 3. We're going to begin at verse number 3 please notice what the Bible says and pay close attention. You want to make sure that you're taking notes, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. And the only way that we're going to stand firm in these last days is if we know without question why we believe what we believe. Are you ready to study? Nobody's ready to study? Are you ready to study? All right, let's get ready to study. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 3, notice what the Bible says. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So based on this verse, before the second coming arrives, what must first take place? You have your Bible, so we don't need the screen. Is that right? You ready to study? It says that there must be a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, verse 4, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you of these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. Verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming even him whose coming is after the working of satan with all power and signs and lying wonders so we're about to study now this study came because someone challenged me and was talking about freemasonry and all this other stuff and i said man you're talking about these things. Do you have any Bible to back your position in regards to what God is requiring his people to expose at the end of time? So what I did was, based on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I listed, I listed eight things that we're supposed to see and expose and identify before the second coming of Jesus. Are you ready? Number one, the man of sin revealed. That's one. Number two, he's also called the son of perdition. Number three, he opposeth and exalteth. Number four, he sitteth in the temple and claims to be God. Number five, he will be revealed in his time. Number six, the mystery of iniquity is already working in his day. Number seven, something is withholding but when it is removed, the wicked one will be revealed. And number eight, his coming is after the working of Satan with power, signs, and lying wonders. Notice here, based on the verse, before the second coming, there must be a falling away. Does everybody get that? Before the second coming, there must be a falling away. Number two, the man of sin must be revealed before the second coming. Now again, the reason why we're talking about this, and you'll see in a moment, I'm not simply interested in exposing a power and calling it a beast power for any reason. There is a specific reason why this man of sin must be revealed. Next point, There's a power that is in the way that is not allowing the man of sin to come to full position or power. So that power that withholdeth must be removed in order for the man of sin to come on the scene. When the man of sin appears, the man of sin must be exposed before the second coming. Does everybody follow that? All right. The man of sin will come with power, signs, and lying wonders. Now, who is this power that letteth and will let? I'm just going to put it up here. I'm going to say pagan Rome. You don't have to believe anything I say. Go back and study. You'll see. Pagan Rome is the power that's in place that has to be removed or put down before the papacy comes to its ascendancy or that wicked one to be revealed. Who is that wicked one? We're going to expose it right now. So let's move this over. The characteristics in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is a perfect match to Revelation chapter 17. Don't have time for you to write that down. Moving on. I want us now to look at the phrase man of sin. I am a big proponent of being able to explain Scripture with Scripture. So how do we describe, or what does this terminology, man of sin, mean? Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except come coming, falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So what is this man of sin about? Notice what the Bible says in Numbers chapter 9 and verse 13. Numbers chapter 9 and verse 13. The Bible says, pay attention. Now, I looked everywhere in the Bible. When I say I looked everywhere, I really mean I looked every single solitary verse up in the Bible to understand what this man of sin meant. Watch what it says. But the man that is clean and is not on a journey and forbeareth to keep the Passover, even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people." Because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season, that man shall bear his sin. Pay attention. The man that does not bring his offering in its appointed season. So I began to think. Why is the Bible saying that this man will retain his sin? So the issue is this. If the Passover is going on and you have the opportunity to attend the feast, but you choose not to attend the feast and you just make an excuse for not going, then because you do not bring the offering in its appropriate time, no matter what you do in regards to confession of your sin, you still retain your sin because you did not bring the offering In its appointed season. Therefore, the man that does not bring his offering in its appointed season retains his sin, thus becoming a man of sin. Do you understand? I'll say it one more time. There's a Passover going on. When the Passover is going on, what does the Passover represent? What does it represent? Who does it represent? It represents Jesus. Is that right? Jesus shedding his blood. Jesus giving his life. So if a man does not bring an offering as the Passover at its appropriate time, that man is saying, I don't need Jesus. I can do it myself. And when a man does that, he's simply saying, I don't need the cleansing blood. I don't need the Lamb of God. Thus, that man keeps his sin. With that in mind, I want you to look at another passage. The passage is 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and beginning at verse number 1. Actually, we're going to begin at verse number 12. Pay close attention, my friends. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and beginning at verse number 12, notice what the Bible says. It says, now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial... They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest servant came while the flesh was in the seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it on the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Watch. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest servant came and said to the men that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee but raw. Now, you know that's not good, right? You're not going to eat raw meat. The priest wants raw meat. Now, watch this. And if any man say unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently, then take as much as their soul desireth, then he would answer him, nay, but thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by what, my friends? I'm going to take it by force. Watch carefully. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. Why was the sin of the young men very great before the Lord? For the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Pay close attention. So you have these corrupt sons of Eli. The Bible says that they're called the sons of Belial. These sons are mistreating the offering of God to the point where the people no longer want to bring an offering. But remember the passage we just read a few moments ago, if a man does not bring an offering in its season, that man retains his what? So the sons of Eli are causing the character of God and the person of God to be despised by the people. Watch what the Bible says. Jumping down now to verse number 22. Verse 22 says, now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, and how they lay with the women that assemble at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to do what, my friends? Transgress. Because the priesthood is corrupt, the people want nothing to do with God because they see God through the priesthood. Are you paying attention, my friends? And if they look at the priesthood, and the priesthood is not representing God properly, the people say, well, I want nothing to do with the God that you say that you serve. Thus... There's a power that arises that claims that it is of God's order, but that power is really causing the people to retain their sins. Now, if you know anything about church history, you'll know that during this time frame, the papal power comes on the scene and causes the people of God or the nations all around to despise God. That's why we got the French Revolution. That's why we got secular humanism. That's why we got atheism. All that comes out of this idea that God is something that He is absolutely not. But let's go a little further. The phrase again continues in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. It says this. Except there come a following away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of what? The son of perdition. Now, again, we're walking slowly through this process because we need to understand what God is about to do in these last days. John 17 verse 12 says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Son of perdition? Who's this talking about, the son of perdition? Who's, who's they talking about? This is talking about Judas. Now, Judas is considered the son of perdition. The son of perdition is Judas Iscariot, and the traitor was prophesied about. Now I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter six verse nine. It says, "But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition." So what drowns men in destruction and perdition? What what drowns men in that? Notice. The focus on money leads to perdition, the loss of one's soul. Tell me something. What was Judas's job when he was amongst the 12 disciples? What was his position? He's the treasurer. Judas is the treasurer. There's a love of money that's mixed in with his motives as he's working with God's church, if you will. Wait, we're still building. We're studying right now. I want you to look at Hebrews 10, 38. Notice what the Bible says. It says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of his soul. Well, that's interesting. If a man draws back from salvation, what is he drawing to? He's drawn to perdition. Notice. To draw back from salvation leads to perdition. Last text on this one point. Notice what the Bible says. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of what kind of men? Ungodly men. Number four. God has judgment and perdition set aside for ungodly men. Now, if I'm looking at this, if I were to add number one, two, three, and four, it would go something like this. Whoever the son of perdition is, loves money, draws back from salvation, and God has reserved judgment for that particular son of perdition. Does everybody follow the idea? Okay, let's go a little further. Now, I was studying, man. I was just going through. I was trying to figure this out because I wanted to understand the son of perdition. As I was studying, the Lord said something to me. Andre, is there anywhere else where perdition or the son of perdition is laid out? So I looked it up, right? And in the Greek there, you see where it says perdition. It says from a presumed derivative, ruin or loss, physical, spiritual, or eternal, damnable, destruction, die, perdition, perish, pernicious ways, waste. In the Hebrew, there's a word called Belial. Remember we saw the sons of Eli were called the sons of Belial? Look at the definition. It says, without profit, worthless, by extension, destruction, wickedness. So watch this. So sons of perdition equals son of Belial. In the New Testament, it's called Son of Perdition. In the Old Testament, it's called Sons of Belial. But wait, we're studying. We're still studying. So I was, I was talking to my boy, I was talking to my friend Lance, and I said, Lance, man, look at what I found. He was like, yeah, Dre, have you looked at the prophecy that David gives right before he dies? I said, no. I said, I need to go check that out. So I went, and I went to 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 6. And I began, not just verse 6, but I began to look at all of it, but particularly at verse number 6. Notice what 2 Samuel 23 verse 6 says. It says, but the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. That's deep. So the sons of Belial cannot be taken with hands. Notice, verse 7. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire In the same place. So I thought that was interesting. So the sons of Belial cannot be taken with hands, but the one that does take him will have an iron fist, if you will. But wait, notice this. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, watch this. It says, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without what, my friends? Without what? without hands, which smote the image upon the feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Daniel 8 verse 25, and through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hands, and he shall magnify himself and his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken how? Remember, the sons of Belial cannot be taken with hands. They have to be taken without hands. Pay attention. I'm laying like a super foundation, okay? We're going somewhere. Colossians 2 verse 11 says this. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without what, my friends? Made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So without trying to break everything down, here's the principle that I draw from these three texts. The principle is very simple, that if God is going to deal with the sons of Belial, if God's going to deal with the sons of perdition, there has to be a divine intervention. Does everybody follow? All right, let's go a little further. Now, I looked up, again, 2 Samuel 23, verse 7. Please notice what it says. Psalms 2 verse 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Look at Revelation 2 verse 27. And he shall rule them with a rod of what, my friends? Iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. Revelation 12 verse 5. And she brought forth a man child. Who's that man child? Who's that man child? Jesus, Jesus is that man-child, and they brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child shall be cut up to God and to his throne. Revelation 19, verse 15. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he shall smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Divine intervention, my friends. As David is dying and as he's about to go off the scene, he prophesies in time events and he says that there's going to be a divine intervention to free the people from the sons of Belial, from the sons of perdition. But wait, there's more. Notice this. 2 Samuel 23 verse 7. Notice these verses. The last part says, they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place place. So I look at the verses. Look at the verses. Leviticus 21 verse 9. Notice what the Bible says. It says, and the daughters of any priest, if she profane herself by playing the whore, she profaneth her father, she shall be burnt with what, my friends? Fire. Daniel 7 verse 11. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning... Flame. Wait, there's more. Revelation 17, verse 16. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with what? Revelation 18, verse 8. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day death and mourning and famine. She shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord that judgeth her. Here's the capstone. Watch this one. Revelation 19, verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that had worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Remember 2 Samuel 23, verse 7? They shall be burned with fire in the same place? As David is dying, the Holy Ghost comes upon him. He begins to prophesy about end-time events, and he's saying that divine intervention must come in to deliver the people of God from this oppressive power. The man of sin must be revealed before the second coming. Now, Andre, why are you talking about this? Notice 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. Notice what it says. And I wish I can point to the screen. I'm going to get down and point. Notice what it says. Verse 4, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. Still talking about the same power. Notice what it says. Daniel 7 verse 8. Look at what it says in Daniel 7 verse 8. You see it there? It says, behold, in this… What does it say there? And what does it say? Keep reading for me. The eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking what? When a mouth speaks great things, that's a power that exalts itself. Wait, there's more. Verse 21, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints. That's an opposition. Are you paying attention? Verse 25, and he shall speak great words against the Most High. That's exaltation. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High, that's opposition. And think to change times and laws, that's exaltation. Look at Daniel 8 verse 10. And it waxed great, that's exaltation, even to the host of heaven, and cast down some of the host and stars to the ground and stabbed upon them. That's opposition. Look at 11. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. That's exaltation. And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. That's opposition. Look at verse 24. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and holy people. That's opposition. Look at verse 25. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself. That's exaltation and by peace destroy many, that's opposition, and he shall also stand up against the prince of princes, that's exaltation. Do you see where the apostle Paul gets his idea that this power exalts and opposes? Wait, there's more. I think this is the capstone. I think this is the brilliant, brilliant verse. Look at the verse. It says, Daniel eleven thirty six. And the king shall do according to his will. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. And for that, that is determined, shall be done. Do you not see as if Paul plagiarized from Daniel? It's as if he took directly from Daniel 11.36 and says, Exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. Why am I talking about this? You guys already know this, don't you? Oh, I'm going to pass this. We don't have time to do this one right now. Please notice the correlation of the characteristics of this power and where he gets his characteristics from. Notice what it says in Ezekiel 28 verse 15. Thou was perfect in all thy ways, From the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. How did you sin? Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Tell me, can you not see a correlation between the eye problem here and the self-exaltation here? Can you not see that? Can you not see, my friends, that the character of self-exaltation is a direct assault on the character of God? Do you see it? All right, let's go a little further. Now, what I want to do, my friends, because my time is leaving me, what I want to do, I've highlighted to you the realities of that condition, of that church. And I want to go back to Daniel, Daniel, the seventh chapter, for a moment. Please go back to Daniel, the seventh chapter, for a moment. And we're going to try to tie some pieces together. Daniel, the seventh chapter, please notice here what the Bible says. And all I want you to do right now is think with me. I'm not trying to become excited. I just want you to think because if we don't enter into this final crisis, understanding what Christ is doing, we're going to be swept right out of this church. In Daniel, the seventh chapter, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 20. It says, And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other that came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. What is this little horn that speaks great things, whose look is more stout than his fellows? Who's that power? I'm sorry, who's that power? Put it right here. It's the papacy. And no disrespect to people that go to church on that day. We're studying together. We are a people we're studying together. So this power, this little horn power, the papacy is in exaltation. It's more stout than its fellows. Notice what the Bible says going back here. Again, verse 21. I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints And uh, prevailed against them. Okay? So pay attention now. So this little horn prevails against the saints. The little horn prevails against the saints. Watch what the Bible says. Verse 21. Until... Until the ancient of days came. Let's pause with that one for a moment. When did the ancient of days come? When did the ancient of days come? When did the ancient of days come? Anybody know? Let's go back a little bit. Daniel 7, look at verse number 9. Daniel 7 verse 9. I'm, gonna, I'm asking you a question. Until the Ancient of deads came, look at verse nine. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was, was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him; ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. When did the Ancient of Days come? 1844. So pay attention. So 1844, the Ancient of Days comes. Why does the Ancient of Days come? What is he doing? What is, what is precipitating or why is he coming to wherever he's coming to? What is he doing? What is he doing? The judgment is what? The judgment is what? The judgment is set, and the books are open. The Holy Spirit just told me what to tell you. Okay, here we go. Revelation chapter one, chapter 14, you know it by heart. Are you ready to quote? Revelation 14, verse 6. What does it say? And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with what kind of voice? a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his what? Of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the seas and the fountains of waters. I'm going to ask you some serious questions right now. I really want you to hear and understand what we're about to study. Question, what does this angel carry according to Revelation 14 verse 6? What does he carry? he carries the gospel. Is that right? He carries the gospel. So I've heard people, even within my own denomination, say that the first, second, and third angel's message is not the gospel. But we're told that this angel carries the gospel. The angel carries the gospel, and then he proclaims the gospel. He says, fear God, give glory, For the hour of his judgment is come and uh, worship. Think right now. Think. Why is judgment part of the gospel? Now, I know what people try to do. Let me tell you what people try to do. People try to say, oh, Andre, the reason why judgment is good is because Jesus stands as your intercessor in judgment. Yes, that's true. But that's not why this is such good news alone. There's something deeper. Watch what the Bible says. I want you to see this. Psalms 37. Watch what the Bible says. For we have have been superficial in our understanding of the judgment. Psalms 37, I want you to begin reading with me at verse number 28. Watch what the Bible says. We're studying right now. Watch what the Bible says. It says, for the Lord loveth judgment. Wow. Do you love judgment? I tell you the truth. Most Adventist people, when I hear them talking about judgment, they are afraid, stiff in regards to the judgment. But the Bible says, for the Lord loveth judgment judgment. And what's the next part say? What does the next part say? And forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved. How long, my friends? They are preserved forever. But the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. Oh, my friends, I I, I just pray that you get this point. God loves judgment. And when God sits in judgment for his people, they are actually preserved. But when God sits in judgment, the wicked are the ones that are actually what? Cut off. Wait, there's more. There's more. Watch this. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and their tongue talketh of what? What does it talk of? The tongue talketh of what? The tongue talketh of judgment. For the law of God is in his heart, and none of his steps shall slide. Now, I want you to go back with me to the book of Daniel. Hold your hand here in Psalms. We're adding. We're doing a little biblical mathematics. Go back to Daniel. And I just want you to answer me the question. What does God love based on what we just read? God loves judgment. Pay close attention. Pay close attention. In Daniel chapter 7, we're reading verse number 9 again. I beheld that the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands thousands ministered unto him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were… Tell me something. Based on what we read here, we know that the judgment is for 1844. What is God's emotions as he enters into judgment? He loves it. Listen, God loves judgment because when he sits in judgment, he's going to judge in favor of his people. And when he judges in favor of his people, he's going to restore them back to their lost possession. Y'all not hearing this right now. You're not hearing. Okay, let's go a little further. Just to amplify this point, you're still in Daniel 7? You're in Daniel 7? Well, look at verse number 21. I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came. Back to the original question. When did the Ancient of Days come, my friend? Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. Now, I want to show you something. There is a wonderful illustration or point in regards to this one point. Notice this. Now, when I first studied this, I read it in the King James Version. And when I read it in the King James Version, I understood exactly what it meant, but I said, Lord, if it's true, I need to see it in another translation. So I read it in another translation. Notice what it says, and I don't believe in the NIV, you know, but we're going to read it in the NIV for a moment. Are you ready? Notice what it says in the NIV. It says, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people, of the Most High. Look at the next verse. The same, same verse, different version, New King James. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given in favor of the saints of the Most High. Wait, there's one more, one more. N-A-S-B. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So there's three parts. First part, the ancient of days came. Second part, judgment given in their favor. Last part: take possession of kingdom. So we know, first of all, that the Ancient of Days came in 1844. But judgment given in favor of the saints of the Most High? When is that given? When is judgment given in favor of the saints of the Most High? Now, the reason why I'm bringing the question, because the little horn has power and prevails until... One, two, three. We know he came in 1844. My question to you again is, when is judgment given in favor of the saints of the Most High? Now, wait. If we're going to answer that question, I need to express to you why this is so important. Go to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 15. Watch this. Proverbs 16 and verse 15. Watch what the Bible says. When you have it, just say amen. Proverbs 16, verse 15. You have it, notice what the Bible says. In the light of the king's countenance is life. And his favor is as a what, my friends? As a cloud of what? Wait a second. So when God passes judgment in favor of the saints, it will be like a cloud of the latter rain. So watch, latter rain. Once the latter rain comes upon the people of God, they now are able to give a loud cry. Thus, they are able to take possession of the kingdom. But wait. I like to think when I study the Bible, and all I'm doing right now is studying with you as if I were at home. This is what I do at my house. I just talk to the walls and go through and put on the board, and that's what I do, all right? So you just happen to be in my kitchen right now as I'm on the board doodling and trying to figure out a problem. So here's my problem. The little horn is supposed to be exposed before the second coming of Christ. This power prevails against the saints and dominates the saints until, until when? Until at least phase number one, 1844, as the Ancient of Days goes in to receive a kingdom. When he goes in to receive a kingdom, at some point when he goes in, Judgment is supposed to be given in favor of the saints. And we know that when judgment is given in favor, it is like the latter rain is going to be poured out upon the people of God. But when does God pass judgment in favor of the saints? Now, it's not talking about dead saints because dead saints are dead. Is that right? We're talking about living saints. Because I can show you, in fact, let's go there. Let's go to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, we're looking at verse number 19. Notice what the Bible says. Revelation 11 verse 19. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. When was the temple opened in heaven? what do they see? The Ark of the what? The Ark of the Testament. Where's the Ark of the Covenant located in the sanctuary? It's in the most holy place. So when was the truth of the most holy place opened up to the people of God? What year? Okay. Go back up one verse. Look at verse number 18. Verse 18 says, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the what? The time of the what? The time of the dead that they should be judged. <laughs> Anybody paying attention? The time of the judge to be judged begins in 1844. So we know that the time for the judgment of the dead began in 1844. Does everybody follow the idea? Okay. Second Timothy chapter 4. Look at verse number 1. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. Please notice what the Bible says. Watch carefully. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his what? At his appearing. And his kingdom. Wait a second. I asked you the question, what does the word quick mean? What does that word quick? Live. So God is going to judge the living and the dead at his appearing. I always ask the advent people, what is this appearing that is spoken of here in second Timothy chapter 4 verse 1? Tell me, tell me what you think it is. What is it? Someone says the great consummation. Someone says the second coming. I would dare challenge you with this concept. Watch. I want you to go with me now to the book of Malachi. You ready? Go to Malachi. So he's going to judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. No question about it that this appearing has to do with the second coming of Christ. No question about it. I'm not questioning that, but I'm going to challenge you with this thought. Watch. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse number 1, watch what the Bible says. The Bible says, behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall come, shall suddenly come where? Where is he coming, my friends? To his temple. I need you to make sure you talk back to me because we're coming to a head right now. To his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come. Where is he coming again? Where is he coming to? He's coming to the temple. He shall come, say of the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? Where is he coming? He's coming to the temple. Who shall abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? Where is he appearing? He's appearing in the temple. What is he going to do when he appears in the temple? Look at the verse. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering how? Okay, here, we're just thinking right now. So based on this verse... Jesus, the forerunner, the covenant-keeping God, is going to appear in the temple, in the most holy place. When he appears in that temple, his job is to cleanse the sons of Levi that Jesus may be able to offer them as an offering to the Father. Wait, there's more. Go with me to the book of Revelation for a moment. Go to Revelation for a moment. Watch this. And this just came to me as I'm standing here, so I just wanted to make the connection while I was fresh in my mind. Revelation chapter 14, notice what the Bible says. Again, he appears in the temple to purify the sons of Levi that he may offer them as an offering to God. Watch what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 14. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard a voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty-four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth, watch, these were redeemed from among men, being first fruits unto God. Wait a second. You mean they're like an offering? These 144,000 are like offerings that are presented before God? Question. When you do study on the firstfruits, Let's say I just drew, I'm going to draw, this is wheat. That's my wheat, okay? I'm going to take the first fruits from here. And I'm going to take these first fruits to the sanctuary, and I'm going to present the first fruits to the Father before I go back and pick up the harvest. Pay attention, my friends. Question, when someone takes the first fruits... Are the first fruits better than the rest of the harvest? No. They're just the first. They're exactly the same. All they're doing is presenting the fruit before the Father and saying, Father, thank you for the harvest that's coming. You present your best, of course, but that harvest that comes looks just like the first fruits. Wait. Are you listening right now? Let's back up. So in 1844... Jesus goes into the most holy place to purify the sons of Levi to present them as an offering to the Father. First fruits. So that when he presents the first fruits, he is now able to go back and pick up the rest of the harvest. But wait, when does Jesus present the first fruits? Because, in other words, there's first fruits from the dead, and there's first fruits of those that are, uh... come on now. There's first fruits of those that are dead, and they're brought up, and there's first fruits of those that are living. When does God present the living first fruit to the Father? Watch. In order to have judgment passed in your favor, You must first pass an examination. In order for judgment to be passed in your favor, your name must come up. You must be examined. It must be something that is seen clearly, and it's the judgment of the living, not the judgment of the dead. So when do we get to see the reality of that judgment? Notice what the Bible says. Father, please help me make it plain. Notice what the Bible says. I wonder if I put it here. You're in Revelation chapter 13? Go to Revelation chapter 13, please. In Revelation chapter 13, beginning at verse number 10, please read for me. Start at verse 10. Please read for me what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? All right, it sounds like Babylon out there, but... You know, I'll I'll have mercy on you in this that one time. Look at verse eleven. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake how, my friends. He spake as a dragon. Notice what it says. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and caused the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he do a great wonder so that he maketh a fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an… They should make a what? All right. Watch me now, friends. Watch, because it's time to wrap it up. And Pastor Keala is going to wrap this up real nice. I know he is. Watch this now. According to the Bible, there's a earth beast. This earth beast is able to do signs and wonders. The signs and wonders gains confidence of the people and then they make an image. Does everybody see that? The earth beast, and in Revelation chapter 16, this earth beast is called the false prophet. I want to draw a line. Go to Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter, please. Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, beginning at verse 1. Notice it says, if there arise among you a prophet or dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a what? What does he give you? A sign or a wonder. So there's a prophet, Deuteronomy 13, he does a sign or a wonder. And what does he say after that? Once he does a sign or a wonder, what does it say that he does? And the sign of wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods. So the sign of wonder comes to pass. He gains the confidence of the people. Then they say, Let's go after other gods. Do you see the parallel? The earth beast is the same as the false prophet. Thus, signs and wonders, gains the confidence of the people, and then says, let's go after other gods. Now watch. Remember, I told you that if judgment is going to be cast in someone's favor, they must first pass an examination or they must first pass a test. Does everybody follow? Watch. Watch. Going on in the same chapter. Thou shalt not hearken to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God, what does he do to you? What is he doing? He proveth you or test you. Wait. To know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your souls, ye shall walk after the Lord your God. And what? What does that say? Fear him. And do what? Keep his commandments. And do what? Obey his voice, and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. So understand, in Revelation chapter 13, what is happening is this is the test for the people of God. This is the test for you and I. When we come to it, you and I must now make a decision on whose side we're going to stand. But understand, when this test comes… And you've compromised with any sin. I don't care what that sin is. You can know I'm not gonna do this, I'm not gonna accept the mark of the beast, I'm gonna stand for truth, I'm gonna stand. Did not Peter say the same thing? Peter said the same thing. He said, I'm gonna stand for truth, I'm not gonna compromise on anything. But Peter himself was shaken out. I'm gonna share these last quotations because I'm gonna share with you the secret that I told you I was gonna share with you yesterday. I want to close with this. This becomes our test, my friends. And it's when we pass the tests that God can trust us with the outpouring of his spirit. But I want to read this to you. Pay close attention to these last points. Because the only way you're going to stand and I'm going to stand is if we remember what happened at Calvary. Here, notice what it says. The death of Christ upon the cross made sure the destruction of him that has the power of death, who was the originator of sin. When Satan is destroyed, there will be none to tempt to evil. The atonement will never need to be repeated, and there will be no danger of another rebellion in the universe of God. That which alone, what does alone mean? Nothing else. That which alone can effectually restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Fallen men could not have a home in the paradise of God without the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Shall we not then exalt the cross of Christ? Watch this. The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ. Why? For even they are not secure except by looking at the sufferings of the Son of God. Did you see that? Even they are not secure except they're looking at the sufferings of the Son of God. So when I see this crisis coming, when I see the end time events come, and listen, they're coming. And if you're afraid, it's because you don't know the man Jesus. Your eyes are not fixed on him. The angels themselves are kept by what happened at the cross. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. My mind starts saying, really? I read this and I said… Am I missing something at Calvary? What is it that the angels see that I don't see? Notice what else it says. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Human perfection failed in Eden, the paradise of bliss. All who wish for security in earth or heaven must look to who? The Lamb of God. So this is why the man of sin is a problem. Because the man of sin doesn't want you to look to the Lamb of God. The man of sin says, look at yourself. The man of sin, go to some man and confess your sin to some man. But let me tell you something about the human heart, the human nature. You know, it's easy to go to a man and confess your sins to a man. But do you know what happens when you confess your sins to a man? You still retain your sins. When you go sit on the counselor's couch and you lay down and you, you start going back to all your childhood memories and you start going through all that, even though you talked to that counselor and you, you gave her your heart and you cried and all that stuff, do you know that you still retain the problem? Listen. Can you come here, Brother Laurent? Brother Laurent's my friend. I wanna, we're going to close this, but I want you to see something. Brother Laurent, come up here, my man. In my hand right here is sin. What is this? This is sin. I'm going to give my sin to Jesus. Are you ready? I'm going to give my sin to Jesus. Laurent, are you ready? Ready. All right, here. Question. If Laurent has my sin, do I have my sin anymore? The answer is no. If I want my sin back, what do I have to do? I gotta take my sin from Jesus. When I confess my sin to Jesus, I confess my lying, my cheating, my stealing, my committing adultery, my bare false witness. All those things. In reality, when I give my sin to Him, I in reality give it to Him. They are in reality in the heavenly sanctuary. I no longer retain those sins. I am a new creature. In fact, to back up this idea, thank you, brother. Look what the great controversy says, 421, paragraph 3. As anciently the sins of the people were by faith placed upon the sin offering and through its blood transferred in figure to the earthly sanctuary, so in the new covenant the sins of the repented are by faith placed upon Christ and transferred in fact to the heavenly sanctuary. Not in theory, not a theological ascent to information. When I give my life to Jesus, He takes my life and gives me His own. Do you understand that? So I'm no longer Andre, I'm Andre. I'm a new creature. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And any teaching that teaches you that you can be forgiven and still retain your sins is a teaching of the Antichrist power. Jesus loves us too much. He loves us too much to leave us in our sins. He, in fact, takes them, my friends. How many want Jesus to take your sin? How many want Him to take your sin? Amen. How many want to be new creatures? Let me see your hand. You want to be new creatures? You know, you don't have to leave this room the same. You do not have to leave this room the same. You see, the whole end time crisis is very simple. There's an image to the beast, and there's the image of the Son, the Son of God, the image of Jesus manifested in a people that have been broken and torn and, de- and depreciated and thought lost altogether. And God says, I can do something with absolutely nothing. He says, I can do it. He didn't say you could do it. He said, I can do it. Angelic perfection felled in heaven. Human perfection failed on earth. Well, why did it fail? Because they depended upon themselves. I tell you this, throw your whole weight on the lamb. Throw your whole weight on the lamb. Throw your whole weight on the lamb. lamb. I tell you the truth, he will change you from the inside out. Throw your whole weight on the lamb. It's the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. You don't have to be the same. You don't have to retain your bad habits. You don't have to retain your anger. Throw your whole weight on the lamb. Bring the offering in the time of the offering. He's there for you right now. You don't have to keep one sin. Not one. While the door of mercy is still open, throw your weight on the lamb. If that's your desire, let's go to our knees. Father, we have seen the results of sin. We have seen that history simply repeats itself, where we as a people break our covenant relationship with you and we're left to feel the power of the destroyer. And Father, we realize going into this final test, into this final crisis, Lord, that we cannot afford to make that mistake. So as one body in this room right now, we're saying, Father, we throw all our weight on that lamb that you've provided for us. We pull all our weight there, Father, for there's nowhere else to go. There is no other strength we're sorry, Lord. Sorry for delaying your coming. Sorry for misrepresenting your character to the world. We're sorry for practicing those secret sins, Lord. We've tried and we've failed, and we've tried and we've failed. And we've tried and we failed. And Father, today we're done doing it ourselves. We throw our weight on the Lamb, we throw our weight on the promises of your word. We thank you. Thank you for taking, in fact, our sins right now. Thank you for making us new creatures right now. Thank you for never giving up on us, Father. We love you, Lord. And again, we pray, teach us to love you more than anything else in this world. Please, Lord, put in each mind that which is most important, for we've covered so much. We want to be ready, Lord. We want the privilege of standing for you in this final hour. Please, we pray this in the name of Jesus and claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Amen.